Welcome to Doing the Work, the frontline stories of social change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Osha Keaton, who is the executive director of Greater Syracuse Hope in Syracuse, New York. OSHA details the incredibly comprehensive and thoughtful strategies HOPE uses in their anti-poverty work at both the systems and individual levels to eliminate systemic barriers that maintain inequity and prevent people from having opportunities. We discuss the racial wealth gap in the U.S. and stereotypes and inaccurate beliefs about people in poverty. OSHA shares her journey of wanting to become an entertainment lawyer but choosing social work due to her own health issues and a social worker who helped her. She stresses the importance of policy work and why voting is critical for social change. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, Osha, thanks so much for coming on, doing the work. Can you start out with telling us about the work you're currently doing? Yes. Um, So right now I am the executive director for Greater Syracuse Hope. And Greater Syracuse Hope is a designated anti-poverty initiative by New York State. We're actually one of 16 cities that Governor Cuomo picked to address uh, poverty, either concentrated poverty or poverty in general throughout the New York area. And so this work really concentrates on finding those systemic barriers that keep individuals from moving from uh, poverty to prosperity and also highlighting, you know, from their point of view, what they would need to move to a level of self-sustainability and uh, self-autonomy. So what are the current campaigns you've got going on as part of HOPE? So HOPE is an interesting um, concept, at least in my opinion, um, because one of the things that we do is we take a look at it from the system side, and then we also take a look at it from the individual. And so from the system side, what we decided to do was to identify uh, key local partners that could help us carry out some of our objectives and our four focus areas. And those four focus areas are health, housing, education, and economics. And so local uh, nonprofit groups, grassroots agency um, had came to with the initiative to do different programming that will tackle a variety of issues that we know contribute to concentrated poverty. The city of Syracuse, unfortunately, has been deemed as number one for concentrated poverty for uh, black and brown individuals throughout the whole United States. And so these agencies have great reputations for being impactful in the work that they do. And so just to give you um, a, a high overview of some of the areas that we're focusing on, uh, we're focusing on financial literacy, getting individuals in the community that are traditionally underbanked, getting them linked to different banking institutions through financial counseling. We're also focusing on education with a hyper focus on the middle school population and those students who have been disengaged from the school system and getting them back engaged in school through wraparound services where we're also offering a supportive social work services to their family as a whole. 
Also under that same uh, strategy, we're offering trauma-informed care through the after-school program, as well as a summer youth job component, which will also teach them about the importance of saving their money with the hope they apply the uh, money that they earn to like getting stuff for like school, school supplies or school clothing. The other strategy that we're doing is this concept around a social isolation for individuals who have been out of the workforce for quite a number of years, uh, either through a known disability or perceived disability. And we will use uh, the concept of volunteerism to slowly reintroduce them into what it's like to go to work. Because, you know, sometimes when you've been out of the workforce for a long time, that can be intimidating. But we do know as an adult, that's typically where you get your most social interaction is when you go to work. So a lot of the individuals here in our community that don't work or have been out of the workforce for quite some time, they also report feeling disconnected from the neighborhood and from the greater Syracuse community as a whole. We, um, our last two strategies deal with um, neighborhood empowerment and getting individuals moving around through transportation. So we want to be able to do a shuttle service, getting individuals back and forth to work, allowing them to go to the grocery store or doctor's appointment. And that would be a free service for the first uh, few rides. And then after that, you know, we, we want them to, to have some stake in the game. So it'll be a, a small nominal fee, but nothing outrageous. And that, that strategy actually partners with our uh, regional transportation authority here so that we can service during the time periods where our bus system doesn't typically run and there's a, like a huge gap. So a lot of individuals who are working at second and third shift, when they get off of work, there's no bus that runs. And sometimes they are quite a distance away from their home and they, and they have to walk in the middle of the night back to their house. So we want to be able to try to fill that gap through the shuttle service. The last strategy deals with it's this concept of making connections in the community through the services that are out there versus how people see their neighborhoods, as well as helping individuals be able to advocate on behalf of their own communities. And that concept is called the community connectors. And these would be individuals that are kind of looked at as leaders in their own communities. We will uh, give them training around mapping. Um, community mapping, asset mapping, and also give them training around like advocacy and what does it take to advocate and, and who are the correct people that you go to when you have a problem. Like the difference between what a city council member does versus what someone on the educational board is responsible for. So, um, and then we're also doing stuff around the new American population because Syracuse has a very big population for new Americans. And so we want to make sure that we're providing supports to those agencies that are known to do great work within those communities. So I think I had all of the system strategies. And uh, on the individual level, um, I have a community advisory panel and they, Shimon, they are phenomenal individuals. They're a group of volunteers that use their free time to help me put on educational forums for the community. Uh, just recently, we had a huge forum about 
uh, issue here in Syracuse dealing with the highway. I-81 is coming down and they were right by my side when we had to go out to the neighborhood. That's going to be most impactful, impacted and flyer and talk to people and really drive home that message as to why this was important and why their voice needed to be heard. And I think it has a different ring to it when you see someone that you could relate to and that you know lives in the community telling you, hey, you need to pay attention to this. So that's a group that I'm always proud of. I always try to give them their props in any interview that I do because they, without them, I would be dead in the water. You've got a lot going on, and the fact that you've got that community support for what you're doing is obviously critical. You know that part when you say it's like people who live right there saying, look, like this is something we got to address. There's just, you know, so many levels that when you hear poverty or anti-poverty work, right, there's just an endless amount of work that could be done to, to deal with this issue. That's what makes the work kind of hard. Uh, You have to do a very, you have to approach the work in a very thoughtful manner. For instance, we decided to not uh, try to do any programming or strategic interventions around housing, right? Because that's such a huge issue. And so when you're taking on things around education and economic empowerment and transportation, you know, housing is its own multi uh, level layered issue that you can just go down this rabbit hole of anything from quality housing, like the leg crisis through um, the rent going up. It's just, it's a lot. So we had to make some hard decisions about where we will focus our efforts on. So yes, yeah, it's, it's a lot of different factors that go into the work of poverty mitigation. You know, as you're telling me all the work that you're doing and then talking about having to make the hard decision to, you know, not take on an issue like housing, right, that is so critical, what I think of, you know, organizations like yours and the folks that are the communities that you're trying to help are fighting and deciding, like, what do we deal with, education or housing, whereas there are elites that are consolidating wealth on a daily basis, you know, and like, I just, as you're explaining all that, I'm like, you know, there's companies that don't pay taxes. There's like so many, right. There's just so many issues. And I'm wondering, um, you know, what do you think it's going to take to address the racial wealth gap? You know, so there's obviously the, there's, there are folks in poverty, There's also, right, that it affects all Mm -hmm. people of all backgrounds, but Mm -hmm. then there's also a clear racial wealth gap in this country, you know, as the result of, Mm -hmm. you know, decades of policy and disenfranchisement, you know, what do you, what's it going to take to, to address that? In my opinion, I think what it would take to address it is folks have to start getting real and start being able to have those uncomfortable conversations, right? So It's one of those things of acknowledging your privilege. And we all have privilege. Like we all have it. I was, I had the privilege of being able to pursue a higher education and and get a master's degree. And so I'm trying to use my platform of privilege, which is education, to try to give back to the community in the best way that I know how. And I think sometimes people don't want to have those tough conversations around how you know, this is a policy, like for instance, redlining that's been around forever. And it's, it's a jacked up policy 
but you may have benefited from that policy through no fault of your own, but it's okay to acknowledge that I, I benefit for some of these policies that seek to strategically and systematically alienate one particular group from opportunities to secure wealth for their family. And once we can all start having those, you know, very transparent and truthful conversations, I think that's when we can start identifying the work. I would love to see us that anytime there is a policy created that we look at what the uh, disparate impact may be on any communities, right? So if we have this great idea about a policy, we just go, you know, you go through it and you say, well, how would it impact this marginalized group and how would it impact that marginalized group and what are the pluses and the cons? Because a lot of times people hide behind the phrase of unintended consequences. So when you talk about the uh, racial disparities wealth gap, that all goes back to policies that have been the driving force in locking out uh, minorities from good jobs. You think about how when the first you know, African-Americans were allowed to be in unions, right, and how long they weren't allowed to be in unions and, and what were the wages that they lost because of that. When you think about new Americans and then wage theft and them being scared to speak up about the fact that they were told that they were going to be paid this amount, but now they're getting paid this amount and they don't want to rock the boat uh, per se because they know that this is a climate that's not friendly to new Americans, even if you do have your papers. And, and once we're able to start taking a hard look at how we move as a country and how we treat other um, individuals in this whole concept of othering situations and how we just need to check ourselves when we find ourselves doing that, I think we won't be able to address issues around wage disparity or housing inequality or food deserts. We, we won't because we are trying to like put a Band-Aid on a bleeding wound and that won't fix anything. The other thing I just wanted to kind of say is like how many people, you know, think about someone who gets off work at night and has to walk home because there's no bus. Just like how many people think about that person or those people like, Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering like when you're publicly speaking about this stuff and you're interacting with communities that they all have cars, right? Like they're not worrying about these kinds of issues. How is what's that conversation look like? Because they're really oftentimes they need to get some buy in to to be willing to support your efforts. Correct. You're absolutely correct. And I'm going to use a social work term here. Cognitive dissident. That's like the thing that you see across their face when, you know, first it's disbelief and then it's pushback. Right. And that's when you just have to keep, you know, introducing the facts. And I think the reason why is disbelief is because so long the prevailing narrative has been that people who are poor, they did something to be poor. So poverty in this country is a morality issue instead of a social policy issue. Totally. And so for those who are listening that may be like, well, what does she mean by that? What I mean is that we put the blame on the person who's experiencing the hardship because we say, well, they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps or they need to go to work and stop having so many babies or they're just drug users. Well, what I say to all three of those misconceptions 
is that how can you pull yourself up by your boots if you don't even have shoes and socks? As far as having too many, how many, too many kids, why is it okay for someone who's making, let's say, $80,000, $90,000 to have a family of five, but just because I make 30, I can't have a family of five. And should I be ashamed about my motherhood and the fact that I was able to bring life into this world? And, you know, the drug use, yeah, that could be an issue of poverty. But we also know a lot of corporate um, wealthy business men and women who also have drug problems. And they're far from broke because, like you said earlier, they're getting tax breaks. They're getting tax incentives. So it's really you know, trying to change that narrative about what causes poverty and trying to humanize a conversation that has been dehumanized for so many centuries uh, or so many decades, should I say, when we're talking about, you know, this work around poverty mitigation. And by the time I'm done speaking to a lot of those communities that do have better access, they seem to get it. And they're always asking, how can they help? And I think that, you know, the best way, what I tell them, the best way that they can help is know what's going on around you, not just in your community, know who your um, representatives are. And so when there's an issue, you know, around uh, certain things going on, be it if it's a new housing bill that's trying to be put into play, if it's something like protect the Affordable Care Act, you know who to who to talk to, who to advocate for, and you understand why you're advocating for that. And also understand that today we're talking about um, you know, people in other communities, but tomorrow we could be talking about you because the research tells us that most Americans are a couple paychecks away from going into an economic crisis if they ever lose their job. So, yeah, those are all really good points and in this whole concept of you know, that it's something is wrong with the person. It just creates so many problems to try to address this issue and and make any progress, you know. Um, And also, you know, the whole concept of welfare moms that is still just permeates that, you know, thank you, Ronald Reagan, um, you know, (laughs) for that horrific concept. But I I just think it's so hard to overcome those things. And the work you're doing is, is just really powerful. It's so needed. I want to make sure to talk to you about your story, your personal story as well, of how you got into this work, because I know you've got, you know, I know you've got quite a story. So I was hoping you could share a little bit of that too. Okay. So in another lifetime, I was going to be an entertainment lawyer. And so I actually did enroll in in law school. I was living in Los Angeles, uh, California, and I was at a small, small law school in Fullerton, California. So you could tell I wasn't from the area because I made that mistake of living almost a half an hour, 45 minutes away from the law school in LA with their traffic. But I was out there doing the law school thing and I um, I started getting sick. I started uh, showing symptoms of lupus, but at the time I didn't know it, it was lupus. So I ended up getting really, really sick and I had to be hospitalized. And during my hospitalization, I uh, made contact with a hospital social worker. And it really threw me through the loop because prior to that, I had only ever seen social workers in school. And so when she came in and she said, oh, I'm the social worker, I was like, what are you doing here? Like, I don't understand. And so she explained to me what her role was and that she was there to help me get services because 
being a law student, I did not have medical insurance because at the time they don't allow at that time they didn't allow you to work a full time job while you were going to law school full time. Rules may have changed by now. I'm not sure, but needless to say, I couldn't afford the the school's um, medical insurance. So I, I didn't have any. So her main objective was to try to get me services. And she actually encouraged me to come back home to New York State because she said I would have an easier time um, accessing Medicaid than I would getting Cal. Um, I think they call it Cal Med in California. So I came back home and I took a, it took a year for my health to get back stabilized. And during that time, I realized I hate law school. I don't want to go back. <laughs> And so I went through this whole, <laughs> yeah, and I went through this whole phase of like um, trying to figure out what I was going to do. And so my family background is one of um, we're not rich by any stretch of the imagination. And so, you know, we're, we're definitely working class. And so that's a foreign concept to my family, trying to find yourself. They're like, yeah, you either going to go to school or you're going to work at um you know, one of these factories here. At the time, it was like Budweiser. I remember getting heavily encouraged to go apply to work at Budweiser. And so I, long story short, I ended up finding a job with a local criminal reform agency here, uh, working with kids in the school. And I got even more exposure to social work. And someone made this suggestion that I enroll in social work. And I, and I was saying that I really want to do something around policy because I felt policy had a lot to do with why I couldn't access adequate uh, health care in California. And that's when I was told, oh, well, you want to do my- macro social work and not micro. And I was like, what? And so I just learned uh, <laughs> that there was so many levels to social work. And it's not just school social workers. And it's not just clinicians. There's social workers that are, you know, congressional representatives. There's social workers that are lobbyists. And I was intrigued and I enrolled and I graduated with my master's in social work. And I haven't regretted it at all one step of the way. It's, it's weird how sometimes what God has to do to put you on your correct path, because had I not got sick, I would have just doggedly pursued my JD because I didn't know anything else. Yeah. Your, you know, your life took a turn and you got a exposed to this whole other aspect of the struggles. I mean, you know, healthcare and the overlap there with poverty too, right? Mm -hmm. And the access, you know, and and how that taught you about policy. I mean, it's amazing. And I do think a lot of people, I know a lot of people go into social work because of personal experiences, right? So Mm -hmm. that's why I like to ask people about them because people listening can relate, you know, people listening are like, yeah, like it makes people feel, this is a very, um, I mean, I, you know, you can speak more to this than I can because you're the one out there doing this every day in the community. But this can be a very stressful and isolating experience and yeah. pressure to create change Yeah. when there's just not enough time, there's not enough resources, you know? Right. So the right. more people can feel connected, right, to each other, I, I do think that's helpful. Mm-hmm. In terms of just getting out your message. Is there anything that you really want to get out there to use this opportunity to, you know, to get out to listeners Mm -hmm. about the work you're doing or about poverty or just how you organize or any of that and and just kind of get your message out there? 
Yeah, um, if if I can just push one one thing, I would say vote. We we really need to a if, if you're not registered, and I hope anybody that's a social worker will absolutely be registered. But if you're not registered, start with yourself and you get registered, and then see what you can do to do like voter registration drives in your community. Um, I know here we're even talking about giving people rides to the uh, polls if need be, um, making sure that people understand the issues because this work, like you said, it has so many different moving pieces, but it all comes back to who we have representing us. And if they're willing to do what's in the best interest of the people, the masses, not just, you know, a select few that have all the wealth and the resources. And how do we spread that resource around? So we are approaching a pivotal point, I think, in this country. This next election is going to be very telling as to where we stand just as people. And I, I just want, I can't say it enough. You have to get out and vote. I even have a vote shirt on, like, because <laughs> it's, it's just so important when you're talking about making change. It starts at the ballot. Yeah, I hear that. And I do. I, I echo everything you're saying. You know, I just all that makes me think of something that I just want to ask you before we wrap up is that, you know, when you so when you talk to folks that are probably some of the most marginalized folks, right? Mm-hmm. Like people in poverty are, to me, some of the most marginalized folks um, yeah. in society. You know, homelessness obviously is right up there as well. And there's an overlap with that, of course, because it doesn't take much to end up on the street when, you know. So when you talk to folks about voting, Mm -hmm. you know, and the importance of it, people in the communities you're working with, what's, how's that conversation look like? That's definitely not a one and done conversation, right? Because I know in my community, I'm fighting against I'm fighting against not apathy, but I'm fighting against um, the notion that they don't matter. Their voice doesn't matter because for so many years, there's been so many things that's happened just in our our small community alone. That's kind of giving them the message that, you know, they, they're not important. And it's one of those things where you have to keep coming back out and just keep, you know, delivering the same message to the same people and doing it with like kindness and trying to understand like where they're coming from. When you break it down to them in a way that really touches them personally, that's when they're be- that's when they're able to relate. I'm thinking about just recently when we were out canvassing to try to get individuals to come to the forum about I-81, and and the the uh, man told us, well, it's okay if the individuals who have more money get more say because you know they have more money, so that's just how it works. And we had to tell him, no, that's not okay. You have grandkids that come and play with you and you want to go outside with those grandkids. And so what would be the impact to you being able to play in your backyard with construction going on less than 200 feet away from your backyard? And it's the same message with voting. I tell people, you know, you want safer neighborhoods. Well, which, you know, person that's running for office has a platform that talks about neighborhood violence and what they would do to address it. What's, you know, what's their voting record? This is how you make change. And just letting them know, like, yes, the process sometimes can be, it can be hard to understand, 
sometimes you may not even get the outcome that that you want, but a thousand little pricks could cause a mighty giant to fall because of bleed out. And I say that to everybody who feels like their voice doesn't count. So if we can all get together and we all, you know, pick up our swords and we all take a stab at it, eventually that giant is going to fall. And we just, we have to believe that and have to keep pushing forward. That's powerful. You know, that is real powerful. And I want to just thank you so much for coming on here, sharing this knowledge with us, sharing about your work and your personal story. And thanks for doing the work in the community. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you for giving social workers a platform to share about their work. Thank you for being courageous enough to uh, put the spotlight on different types of, you know, social workers out there because you know, sometimes we're pigeonholed. So I, I want to also just give hats off to you. And this has been a pleasurable experience. And I'm so humbled that you chose to interview me and spotlight my work that I'm doing here in Syracuse. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.